This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Screenplay. Based on a true story. Fade in. July 1852. The 40-mile desert. Nevada. Medium shot. A young man is driving a battered, covered wagon across a heavily rutted track. He's in his mid-twenties. Thick clouds of dust swirl around, close on the man's face. His features are barely visible through the thick layer of dirt. His skin is scorched, his expression exhausted, defeated. Camera pulls back to reveal other wagons in front and behind. Littering the landscape, scores of dead cows, horses, and mules. Aerial shot. The trail of wagons stretches out in the distance as far as the horizon. Dozens, hundreds of them, crawling across the vast expanse of hostile desert. The young man on that wagon was August Schuckman. He'd arrived in New York from Germany three years earlier on the good ship Perseverance. He was fleeing revolution. Schuckman didn't want to be a soldier. He didn't want to die for someone else's cause. So he headed to America. And now he was heading west. Heading west for a new life in California. The gold rush was in full swing. Fortunes were being made. Schuckman wanted in. August Schuckman was just one of 300,000 other hardy souls drawn to California. So why choose him? because Shuckman was the great-grandfather of California's longest-serving governor. During his time in office, he'd seen the population of the state double, and he'd see California's economy grow to become one of the largest in the world. The governor's name? Jerry Brown. Jerry Brown is the most singular character in the history of California politics and one of the most singular characters in American politics in the 20th century. Pat Morrison, L.A. Times columnist. He and he alone will have served 16 years as governor of California because of a quirk in the law. And so you have two Jerry Browns. You have Jerry 1.0, his early governorship, and the second time around, and how different a man he was, how different the state was, and how he came to terms with it. Cut to a man sitting in a high-rise apartment. Behind him, through a large picture window, a panorama of San Francisco's steep streets stretches out. I'm Jerry Brown. I was governor of California from 1975 to 1983, and again from 2011 to 2019. Now 81, when he's not in San Francisco, Jerry Brown lives on the same land his great-grandfather lived on 170 years ago. I'm in touch because I'm on the same soil with the same oak trees. I would just say he is a pioneering spirit. I could see the, the challenge that it took to get on that sailing ship and head out to this new world. That took a courage, an openness that I think we're sorely in need of today. And there's something else you need to know about Jerry Brown, if you don't already. Jerry's father, Pat, he beat Nixon to become governor of California in the 60s. You don't have Nixon to kick around anymore. Pat was an unbridled optimist. He built hundreds of miles of new freeways. He brought water to parched Southern California. The dream of bringing an abundance of water to this, our Southern California, to the oft-too-dry soil of our fair state, 
has been in the heart and the mind of this man. And he promised a free college education for all. But the admiration for him among real good thinking people... But the mood changed. Race riots in L.A. in 65. There are a lot of burnt buildings, looted shops, National Guardsmen with fixed bayonets and submachine guns. Vietnam. Pat's popularity plummeted. In 67, he lost to a Hollywood actor by the name of Ronald Reagan. I learned that uh, the cowboy spirit uh, takes you a long way. Ronald Reagan is a can-do, optimistic movie star that uh, saw what he called the, the waste in Sacramento, the disruption on the campuses, the riots in the inner cities, and he was going to ride into town and clean it all up. Those who, under the euphemism of social unrest or civil disobedience, who take to the streets in riot and mob violence will not be tolerated in this land of ours. He was a very attractive speaker. He could cock his head and smile in response to a, a difficult question. Warren Beatty, the movie star, once told me that he was in the White House showing the movie Reds. And during the intermission, Reagan came back in his chair and said, you know, Warren, I don't see how anyone could be president unless they'd first been an actor. Reagan left office in 75 to focus on running for president. It was Jerry Brown's moment. He ran for governor, promising a new spirit. I've been looking at the returns. I've been watching television, watching the wire services, and it's pretty obvious to me that you got a Democratic governor in 1975. Brown was governor at the age of 36. But he wasn't exactly a chip off the old block. He was his own man, an austere man. Where his father spent... Jerry saved. He forewent the governor's mansion and limousine. Some thought he was consciously making a break from his father's way of doing things. Well, I didn't set out to be different from my father. I set out to face the changes and respond to them. I remember 1973 when I was seriously thinking about governor and 74 when my campaign began. America was in the midst of losing the Vietnam War. It had been going on for years about that time, we, we get Watergate. These were new signs of America's limits. We have this elevated, exaggerated, puffed-up sense of an America that can do no wrong and will bring the good life to the world. Well, that with Vietnam, with Watergate, that put all this in doubt. During his first term in office, Jerry Brown had close relations with Mexican-American trade union leader Cesar Chavez. Brown championed Chavez and championed farm workers' rights. Cesar Chavez is an interesting tale about the position of Mexican-Americans in society. Al Camarillo of Stanford University. A child of migrant farm workers gets to see the inequality. As a young adult, he settles out in, in East San Jose into a segregated Mexican-American community. Here's where he meets Dolores Huerta and they build the first successful farm labor organization in American history. Jerry Brown, in his first stint as governor, he actually supports legislation to provide the first protections for the unionization and the organization of farm workers. In the anteroom to his office, a crowd of Chicano farmers has burst in and demanded an audience. An aide tells them that the governor is engaged. But Brown abruptly cancels two meetings and comes in to speak with them. I will take a very good look at the bill. I just heard about it today. That fits in line, I think, with the 
rural task force that we have set up. Cesar Chavez is a very charismatic figure, and uh, unlike political leaders on the East Coast, more closely connected with the civil rights movement, way out here in California, the plight of the farm worker and the charisma of Cesar Chavez was more immediate. And it did have a, a romance to it, and it was growing at the time, in the 70s, was the peak of his movement. So that's why I championed the farm labor law, which allowed secret ballot elections and the stabilization of unions. Overnight lows in the 40s and 50s, right now in San Jose, 66 degrees. Silicon Valley, California, birthplace of the microchip, and for the last 10 years, a star performer of the United States economy. In the 10 years to 1980, this was an industry that grew at a remarkable 30% per annum. In the mid to late 70s, Silicon Valley boomed. My entry into public life was about the same time as the emergence of Silicon Valley. People are uh, often in America complaining about the Chinese spending all this money subsidizing things, but our space program and our military weapons system certainly produced a lot of scientists and a lot of innovation. But even today, they're not making blocks or gold bars or automobiles. They're making digital streams. And the only way digital streams can produce sustainable wealth is that there be a government to not let people steal it. The very basis of wealth in Silicon Valley depends on the coercive power of government to support what they're doing and to prevent others from grabbing it, hacking it, stealing it, copying it. Brown served two terms as governor. Then he quit the governor's office to campaign for the Senate. Jerry Brown, the governor of California, has spent $3 million this year in a bid to become a senator. He lost. Brown was in the wilderness. His response was very California, very Jerry. He spent time with Mother Teresa and studied Buddhism in Japan. The general view of the world, to me, seemed to be missing something. So the, the religious element, you might call it the mystical element, interested me. My grandmother, she would read Bible stories to me, and I was attracted to it because it seemed a more perfect world. And I find that the banality of uh, ordinary existence in need of something uh, deeper and more, and more compelling. So that's why, after being governor, I went off to Japan and spent six months there practicing uh, Zen meditation. I like to define people as either living in advocacy or living in the inquiry. So I'm still inquiring. Brown took a shot at the top job, the presidency, three times. Whoever gets the Democratic nomination in 1976, many Americans are convinced that Edmund G. Brown Jr. is going to be President of the United States sooner or later. Mr. Brown, who is 37, is an interesting candidate. He spent seven years in a Jesuit monastery, is adept at balancing the state budget, and deplores extravagance of any kind. Like Mr. Carter, he's an outsider. Some people think the campaign is locked up. I think it's wide open. Carter and Kennedy are part of a a democratic leadership that is bankrupting the country. And he came close. Like two heavyweight boxers, Bill Clinton and Jerry Brown squared up for the huge New York primary with clenched teeth and a handshake. We've got a corrupt, complacent status quo that will not change one iota unless we, the people, send a powerful message 
Get off the dime, Washington. We want a country that works for all of us. In the Democratic primaries, Brown came second to a guy called Clinton. But Brown was down, not out. He ran for governor again, 36 years after he first did so. F. Scott Fitzgerald said there are no second acts in American lives. Well, in the case of Jerry Brown, he was wrong. Brown won, and won by a landslide. Taking over from Arnold Schwarzenegger, a Republican, we have Jerry Brown back in 1975, the youngest person ever to be the governor of California. Now at the age of 72 in the year 2010, he is the oldest person to be governor of California. When he entered office, California had a deficit, a big deficit, $27 billion. The challenge turned out to really be a blessing because the fact that there was a deficit meant that many of the liberal enthusiasms had to take a back seat while we balanced the budget. We were not allowed to borrow like the federal government. So we had to balance our budget. In order to do that, you got to put a tight discipline on the operation of government. So that created focus. It created a sense of strength on my part. But we're cutting from a very high base, and California has far more government activity in the way of medical care, in the way of subsidies and our welfare and schooling and education and training, all the rest of it. But we didn't have the money, so we didn't just cut. We held out the promise of a tax increase to provide more money. When Jerry became governor second time around, California was rich, very rich the world's fifth largest economy. But homelessness is everywhere. Cut to Skid Row, Los Angeles. Scores of tents line the sidewalk. Sleeping bags are everywhere. Shopping carts contain the homeless residents' belongings. So we're sitting on the rooftop of the L.A. Can Justice and Wellness Center. Pete White. The official numbers, the official houseless count for Los Angeles County is 59,000 people. But most people believe the real number hovers more like 75, 80,000 people. When you travel down 6th Street, because we're on 6th Street um, right now, you see black faces until the eye goes dim, right? Because it's the impacts of deindustrialization. It's the impacts of the failed drug war. It's the impact of the, the, the spread of the prison industrial complex. It's the impact of welfare reform. It's the impacts of gentrification. You see all of these man-made, politically made decisions leading to communities such as these, shanty towns such as these, because people have nowhere else to go. Property prices are sky high. People say that in some places, the middle class has disappeared. It's no longer an open landscape. It's expensive. Water is expensive. Land is expensive. Pat Morrison, L.A. Times columnist. People who'd worked jobs where 30 years ago they could buy a house and send their kids to college are seeing that slip away. What California cannot become in the 21st century is a kind of tech oligarchy or a Hollywood oligarchy. We cannot let ourselves drift into an upper class and a lower class with nothing in between. That's not a healthy economy. It's not a healthy culture. That was never the California dream. Poverty is the highest in the U.S., according to some estimates. That's untrue. It's a technical matter, but California is similar to the national average. 11, 12 percent. 
maybe a little higher, maybe a little lower. Yes, we have poverty. Yes, we have homelessness. We have plenty of issues. So I would say there is a dark side, a downside to the wealth. That is with this skewed economy, the stratification, 100 millionaires and billionaires and all the rest of it. Well, that money floating around, plus the low interest rates, allow people to bid up the cost of housing. That's a big problem. And we're seeing this. Now, to correct that, well, it'll be corrected soon enough in the next big recession, which I believe is inevitable. But secondly, it does become a huge challenge to the legitimacy of capitalism. How in the world can you take the capital away from those who've earned it? They think by their own genius. But to take that away by a wealth tax, by income tax, by restricting salaries through government uh, rule, that is going to really shake the political system. And although there are people advocating that, Bernie Sanders and, and Elizabeth Warren, it remains to be seen whether that will have that much traction. The disruption is universal. When the cowboys came out here, of the gold miners, they call them Argonauts, they showed up here. It wasn't good for the native peoples. Uh, their way of life worked for over 10,000 years. But in a matter, literally, of a few decades, they were gone. Their way of life, uh, they were 85, 90% wiped out. Well, something similar is happening to the larger society. Not as dramatic, not as quick, but there's disruption afoot. But poverty isn't California's only problem. Fade in. Car interior, day, Marin County. Medium shot through windshield. We're driving through a small town. The sky is a hazy orange. Windshield wipers remove what looks like snow. Close up, it's not snow, it's ash. By the side of the road, power lines hang down, touching the sidewalk. Passing a gas station, a sign says, closed. Passing a school, the sign says, closed. Doctor's office, closed. The car pulls into a grocery store parking lot. Tracking shot as we enter the store. The store is open but dark. Candles illuminate the gloomy interior. The shelves are empty. This is just one of many fires burning. California has been burning. Where a state of emergency has been in place since... If you have a drought, as we did for several years, the brush gets drier. And uh, if the humidity is diminished over time, then it becomes a tinderbox. It's, it's like kindling. We depend on a level of humidity. A new wildfire is burning out of control in California, just the latest in a series... If we don't get the, the moisture, yeah, we'll have fires. I mean, it's unimaginable, the horror of it. And we're pumping into the atmosphere heat-trapping gases. The form of CO2, it stays in the atmosphere hundreds of years. Californians drive 340 billion miles a year, and they use about 18 billion gallons of gasoline and diesel. Well, we got to get to zero and get there pretty fast. It's nearly time for the credits to roll. We're reaching the end of the Californian century. And you can't deny that California has had a good century, a very good century. Pat Morrison, L.A. Times columnist. Here we are, sitting like a tiara atop the city of Los Angeles, Lake Hollywood, looking out at what in 12 hours will be a glittering landscape of light in the buildings. And now is a beautiful 
cool day of pines and palms and uh, mountains and ocean. You couldn't ask for anything else, which is why we love it here. But will the next 100 years be quite as good? The last 100 years for California were pretty fat and easy. To look at the second 100 years is to recalibrate, now that we've used up all the easy stuff, where does the hard stuff begin? How do we reconfigure government to make it work? Because Californians have traditionally been very leery of government. They don't like to fund it. They don't have a lot of faith in it. We have to be a lot smarter. We can't just come into California and start throwing cyanide in the rivers to release the gold from the rocks as we did during the gold rush. It's not going to be easy pickings as it was before. We have to be smart. We have to be judicious. We have to be humane. Now more people leave California than settled there. For a state built on migration, that goes against the grain. People wonder whether California can maintain its dominance in the next century. Well, dominance is a, is a term that shouldn't be left unchallenged. Uh, dominate means somebody else has to be submissive. Winner take all. Uh, who's number one? We have to work toward a world that will work for everyone. And that, that's not the current paradigm. California can't just grow forever. We're entering upon an era of limits. Okay, it's 40 million people. Uh, what's the right number for California? For 10,000 years, as best we know, the right number was 300,000. And now we say it's 40 million. Well, I don't think it's 50 million. So I'd say we, we have to learn to confront and live harmoniously within limits. But all of our ethos, our view of the world, is based on growth. Capitalism feeds on growth, but the growth can't be in the same material way that it is now. That's a proportionate sensibility. Very much opposed to kind of the cowboy ethic, right in, take what you can, and move on to the next piece of land. That's built into our character, but in a shrinking world, that doesn't work. It might just be that Jerry Brown is the embodiment of California, its promise, its contradictions. A man whose great-grandfather pitched up in a covered wagon, determined to make his fortune. Ingenious, resourceful, determined. August Shuckman made a go of it. So did Jerry Brown. But it's true of California now as it was then. No matter how much wealth is created, from Hollywood to Silicon Valley, there's never enough gold and good fortune for everyone. The Californian Century was narrated by me, Stanley Tucci. The academic consultant was Dr. Ian Scott of Manchester University. Sources for this episode include The Browns of California by Miriam Pavel. Sound was by John Boland, and the editor was Philip Sellers. It was a BBC Radio Documentaries Unit production for BBC Radio 4. The series was written and produced by Lawrence Grizzell. Fade to black. The end. Well, that's it. What'd you think? Ugh, screw you. This one's gonna sell, I know it. Henry Akeley disappeared from his home on the edge of Rendlesham Forest somewhere around the end of June 2019. They come every night now. 
believe me, please, I just need you to get in touch. What we uncovered is a mystery that has sent us deep into England's past. To an area steeped in witchcraft, the occult, secret government operations. Now we have multiple sites of five lights with a similar shape and orbit. And something that might indeed be altogether otherworldly. <laughs> this is The Whisperer in Darkness. Available now on BBC Sounds.